Okay, great. Let's kick this off. So this is round two on the uh, different terrorism panel. Um, same format, different panelists. Um, basically, it's an extension of the first panel. It's on Al-Qaeda, but this one is more focused on um, international rather than uh, the domestic arena. Uh, so um, I'm very pleased to be a discussant on this um, on this superb panel. Um, we have excellent presenters. Uh, the first uh, presenter is um, Mitchell, Mitchell Silber. He's the director of the Intel Division's Analytic and Cyber Units uh, for NYPD. Previously, he served on the strategic staff for the Commissioners of Intelligence. Um, he's the author of a new book, uh, The Al-Qaeda Factor, Plots Against the West, uh, University of Pennsylvania Press, uh, which can be found outside. Um, he's also a co-author of a recent report uh, with NYPD um, on radicalization in the West. Um, Silber has presented um, at you know, very high-level um, events, uh, including on behalf of the NYPD for the White House, the National Security Council, CIA, FBI, uh, and NCTC. Second up will be uh, Professor Michael Kenney, um, an associate professor of international affairs at the University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School of International and Public Affairs. Um, I've been a, a longtime avid reader of his um, terrorism research, which has come out in all sorts of um, leading policy rel relevant, as well as um, peer-reviewed journals, um, such as Survival, Studies in Conflict and Terrorism, uh, Terrorism and Political Violence. Um, do, you have, do you have stuff outside, too? Or? Yeah, there's an article. Mm -hmm. sure. Great. Yeah. Um, and then the third speaker will be uh, Glenn L. Carl, who served 23 years uh, in CIA. His last position was on the National Intelligence Council as Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Transnational Threats. Um, and he's also the author of, of a new uh, major work on terrorism called uh, The Interrogator uh, in Education. So without further ado, I'll just uh, turn it over to those speakers. Thanks a lot. Good morning. Uh, first, I wanted to thank uh, Cato and Ben Friedman for, for hosting this event and for inviting me to come down. Um, I found it interesting that uh, being from NYPD in New York City, I was being asked to comment on the uh, threat overseas in the West. Um, but frankly, that, that's in alignment uh, in the book that uh, Max mentioned that, that's out, uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, the Al-Qaeda factor, because it's looking at the 16 most important plots from 1993 uh, to present day against the West. So really, it was more than just a US focus. And in fact, the majority of the plots uh, were either European, uh, Canadian, and, and Australian as uh, other parts of the West. Um, today, I'm going to be talking, uh, not representing the NYPD in an official capacity, more as uh, an author and a visiting lecturer at, at Columbia University. 
Um, I thought it important to sort of set the stage, since we're talking about homegrown terrorism, with at least a, a working definition from, from my standpoint, because it tends to get a little bit complicated, uh, especially when you've got individuals who may radicalize in the West and then travel overseas uh, and then meet up with a foreign terrorist organization. So at least for my comments, uh, and we can certainly discuss this, um, I'm defining homegrown terrorism in a, in a Western context, right? It all depends where home is. Um, that it's religious or political violence that derives from a process of radicalization to violence, which occurs in the West, uh, to either citizens or long-term residents. And then the targeting issue is important, and I think uh, Brian mentioned that, and, and target the same country in which the radicalization occurred. Okay, so you get radicalized in one place, um, and the place that you ultimately come to target is actually that, that same place. Um, and when you think about, you know, homegrown terrorism, it gives you, there, then there's sort of three different variants off of that. Um, in one variant, the individual who radicalizes in the West travels overseas and links up with a foreign terrorist organization, and they are under their command and control. Command, they're given orders to do something. Control, um, and I work in a para paramilitary organization, means your boss calls and say, have you done it yet? and they check in on with, with you until you have, and you have to report back. Um, and a good example of that would be the Operation Overt plot. And this was a 2006 plot, if you might remember, the Gatorade bottles, and this is why every time you go on a plane you can't bring any liquids. These were guys who were all radicalized in the UK. They traveled overseas. They ended up linking up with Al-Qaeda Corps in, uh, in the AFPAC area, they were, give, they were commanded, given a specific mission, you'll make these explosive devices and you'll bring them on planes and you'll explode them in nine transatlantic flights between the uh, UK and the US and Canada simultaneously and control. There were calls in to find out, were they progressing on the plot? What's going on? Are you being surveilled? When is the go date? So that's a command and control plot. And frankly, the 7-7 plot in London, the Metro bombings, July 7, 2005, uh, we also now know that to be an Al-Qaeda command and control plot. The individuals radicalized in the UK, they linked up with Al-Qaeda Corps, they came back, they built the hydrogen peroxide devices, and now as there was a coroner's inquiry, sort of their version of the 9-11 report into the attacks this past year, and it turns out that someone from, uh, from Pakistan was calling them and checking on them as they were moving toward the go date. So that's one variation, command and control by a foreign terrorist organization. Another variant is suggested or endorsed. Um, you meet with a foreign terrorist organization and they say, you know what? We actually have enough foreign fighters here or enough fighters here. You've got a UK passport. You've got an American passport. Why don't you go do something for the cause back in the US, UK, Denmark, you know, you name it. Uh, but nevertheless, you radicalize in the West. You may get some training. You may get some general di direction, timing, targets. Hey, why don't you do it around September 11th in New York? You're New Yorkers. And that's the Zazi plot. There was no command and control of these individuals who radicalized in Flushing, Queens, but rather a suggestion or an endorsement. They come up with an idea, they, they pitch it to Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda supports it, and then they go to carry it out. Um, that's the seven, the, the Zazi plot. Uh, in many ways, that's the, uh, that, that's the Christmas day, Umar Farouk Abdul Talib. He radicalized in London, really. He travels to Yemen, he meets Anwar al-Awlaki, 
Um, and they say, listen, we've got this plot for you. We'll train you. You take this explosive device. And then they sent him. And there wasn't any com control. They didn't speak to him once he left Yemen. Um, similar to the, uh, the Times Square plot that we heard about this morning a little bit earlier. Um, and the 721 plot in London, no ongoing communication. And then the last category for homegrown individuals is the Al-Qaeda-inspired. You never actually, uh, you're not being run by a foreign terrorist organization, you're acting on your own. These are the Madrid plots. The Madrid plot, in fact, were individuals in Madrid who did not link up with Al-Qaeda core, they were inspired by them. The, uh, the Hofstede group in the Netherlands, uh, known because Theo van Gogh was slaughtered in midday in Amsterdam, but that ended up wrapping up the group before they were able to proceed with some of their other plots, which included killing parliamentarians, attacking the intelligence agency, as well as uh, the uh, airport in, in Amsterdam. The Operation Pendennis plot in Australia, uh, two clusters of men in Sydney and in Melbourne of primarily um, Lebanese descent, who had traveled, some had traveled overseas, some had trained with LET, some had trained with Al-Qaeda, but after that they lost the communications link, and two and three years later they decided to attack targets in Sydney and Melbourne, potentially the Australian Football League Championship, with backpacks just like 7-7 seven, seven, and 7-21, or the Toronto 18. These guys called themselves Al-Qaeda in Canada. Uh, they weren't officially Al-Qaeda in Canada, they were inspired. Their desire was to coerce Canada to drop out of the coalition in Afghanistan. So what did they do? They came up with a plot wanting to use ammonium nitrate to attack the CSIS intelligence agency, the Canadian Stock Exchange, um, as well as a, a military base. Um, so, you know, the conspirators are Westerners, and that's an important thing. They operate with informal networks. In a sense, these are the local boys doing the lifting, and they have varying levels of links upstream to, uh, to foreign terrorist organizations. Now, in your, uh, in your folders is a handout, uh, and uh, I apologize, it has six slides on it. Um, they're, they're a little small, but let me, I'll, I'll walk you through the first one because I think the first one, um, which is called the scene and counterculture, is important because essentially it talks about, well, what happens to these Westerners, right? Because that's what we're talking about. People who are in Madrid, Flushing, Queens, um, Leeds, Beeston, and Dewsbury in the UK, um, Toronto. Well, essentially, and this is, this is coming out of research from my book, from the radicalization paper, and frankly, from seeing it in real time in New York City from investigations that we've run. People join what I call the scene, and the scene, you've seen the movie, The Social Network, well, the scene is sort of the jihadi social network. Um, it's not terrorism, it's what precedes terrorism. And it's amorphous, it looks like a blob, and inside the blob are certain locations, if we're talking about Al-Qaeda-inspired terrorism, it might be certain mosques, it might be certain ideologues, it might be certain student groups at certain universities, uh, and people bounce around and they're like free electrons. And like any type of network, there were nodes in there. Now, how do people come into the scene? Well, it seems like they come in on two different tracks. One is based on reactionary Islam. We're individuals who may have grown up secular, adopt a, a literalist interpretation of Islam, where they adopt the view that democracy and Islam are not compatible, 
There's a binary worldview. They're either believers or unbelievers. They have this notion of a, of a return to the caliphate. And they may not exactly understand all the nuances and details of that. These guys aren't religious scholars, but they get the gist of it. And they may adopt ideologies that are antithetical to uh, democracy, Salafi, Tablighi Jamaat, some of these groups. So there are some people who join the scene on sort of a, a religious track, a sort of literalist, fundamentalist track. But then there are other people, and again, you heard about this earlier, that get join the scene because of politi politicization. They, they've adopted the uh, war against Islam view, that essentially Samuel Huntington, there's this clash of civilizations. Islamic lands have been invaded by the United States and its allies. So what do they do? They join groups. They join politically active groups in their cities. It might be Hizbut Tahrir, it might be Al-Muhajirun, Revolution Muslim if you're in New York, Islamic Thinker Society. And, they, and they're activists. They protest against uh, different events, protest against the war if you're in the UK, protest against soldiers coming back from Afghanistan, um, <laughs> protest against uh, the Israeli Day Parade if you're in New York. But that, that's essentially what they do. And, and, and for every plot that I looked at in my research, um, there was a scene. There's a scene in London you've called Londonistan, certain mosques, uh, certain Muslim student associations, um, certain people who were ideologues uh, in that scene who people would bounce off of. Same thing if you look at Toronto or Sydney or New York City. So there's a scene and it's sort of the milieu where people start to adopt the ideas. But understand that's not terrorism. That's really what precedes it. And what happens is that ultimately people come to the conclusion that, and we learn this from the trial transcripts from some of the other plots, people say, you know what, Al-Muhajirun, all I do is talk, talk, talk. They don't act. And they're not changing things. They're not changing Western countries' foreign policy. Uh, if they've gone the religious route, all of their dawa efforts, all of their proselytization uh, haven't changed the world. So these individuals ultimately come to the conclusion that action is necessary to remedy the situation because protest activity and, pol and political activity is ineffective. And what they do is they actually, they reject the scene. They spin off. They spin off with a few people who they grew up with, who they went to university with, maybe who they traveled overseas with, and they decide and they meet in a bookstore. If you're in uh, the UK or maybe if you were in Hamburg, Germany, you, uh, Mohammed Atta's apartment or in Lackawanna, Buffalo, um, another individual's apartment, and you have these discussions about politics and religions and what do we need to do? There's a guilt about living in the West and the desire to take action. Uh, you know, Brian Jenkins accurately profiled these individuals as they're in an activist mode. We're talking about an age that, you know, if they were looking at this diametrically opposed way, they'd want to join special forces. These guys want to join the jihadi special forces. Um, so they want to, they break off from the scene, they have these private meetings, and ultimately what they decide is that they need to go overseas. And they need to go overseas for a variety of different reasons. They need to either go overseas because they want to provide military support to the brothers who are fighting coalition forces in Afghanistan for skill development. Um, as you've heard earlier, it's, it's difficult to build some of these devices to provide supplies as a supply network for sanction or direction. What, do you, what, what does Al-Qaeda want us to do? Give us some direction. And for many of them, um, to fight overseas. We want to fight coalition forces who have invaded Islamic lands. Um, what happens when they get there? Well, as I alluded to earlier, oftentimes Al-Qaeda, or if it's Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, um, says, well, wait a second. You know, we've got plenty of people who are serving as, uh, you know, 
from, from local entities, you've got a US passport, you've got a UK passport, we're gonna give you some training and we're gonna redirect you. And essentially that's what happened in most of the big Al Qaeda plots against the West. Whether you're talking about the 7-7 attacks where Mohammed Siddiqui Khan made a video before he left saying goodbye to his daughter because he thought it was a one-way trip until Al Qaeda turned him around and sent him back. Or Zazi from New York City who went because he wanted to fight against coalition forces. And then Al Qaeda turned him around and sent him back. So these Westerners go there and Al Qaeda is opportunistic. They're not necessarily recruiting in the West. We haven't seen recruiters per se, but they've been opportunistic. They've sent people back with the right pedigree who have clean skins to come back to the West to do their bidding. Uh, and the, with the knowledge that it's very difficult to get 19 operatives. Um, they couldn't even get the 20th in before 9-11. So that's very much the methodology. Um, and we talked a little bit about operations and the constricted security environment. Post 9-11, what you're really seeing is the reconnaissance, the logistics, the weaponization, the communication, all of the operational cycle for plots in the West is happening in the West for fear of the travel and, and it being detected. Um, just to close out, you know, what does the threat look like when I look at um, the homegrown threat overseas? And frankly, it applies to the U.S. as well. Um, you've got individuals uh, you know, from the West radicalizing. They still want to travel overseas, whether it's a Samir Khan, uh, the five students from suburban Virginia who we heard about this morning, uh, or, or a Shahada from New York who wants to join uh, a group in Pakistan. It's, there's still enough of al-Qaeda core left to meet up with. All you need is one individual who knows how to make a TATP device, hydrogen peroxide device, train that individual, send them back to the West, let him grab two or three of his associates, and you've got a 7-7 plot. You've got the Zazi plot, called the most serious plot on American soil since 9-11. But now you've got affiliates and allies. You've got LET, you've got AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, who we now know will send individuals back to the West. And as Al-Qaeda core diminishes, some of these other foreign terrorist organizations are threatening in the sense that a Westerner, a Faisal Shahzad, might link up with them and be sent back. And then lastly, you've got the Al-Qaeda-inspired threat that we've seen so much of in the last two years in the US. And a note on that, we've seen smaller conspiracies, micro conspiracies. Uh, why is that? And I think partially that's a, because the security environment is so tight. It's a success for law enforcement. You don't have the Toronto 18 anymore. You've got the Jose Pimentel 1 in Manhattan building pipe bombs from uh, Inspire magazine. They're afraid. That person who they're talking to, if they haven't known them all their life, they may be an informant, they may be an undercover, and frankly, that's limited their operational capabilities and probably net-net uh, made us a lot safer. Let me end there. Thank you. Thanks so much. Professor Kenny. Great. Thank you, Max. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Thank you to the Cato Institute and Mr. Benjamin Friedman and also John Mueller for the, uh, the invite and to come and speak with you today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to talk with you about some research that I did uh, all the way back in 2007 before we, um, I think, got to the point that we are at today of, of recognizing um, the incompetence that you see in so many of these plots in the West. Um, the National Institute of Justice gave me some money to go over to Europe, specifically Britain and Spain, 
to study Islamist militancy uh, and organizational learning and some other things like, like the internet. And based on previous work that I had done on the, uh, looking at various sorts of uh, criminal actors and also uh, Islamist terrorists, I was expecting to find fairly sophisticated adversaries that were capable of adapting their activities in response to what the government was doing in fairly effective ways. And that certainly would have been good for my career uh, if, if I had been able to find that and would have made, I think, uh, the research very sexy from, from a certain uh, perspective. Unfortunately, or, or, or not, um, that's not what I found. Uh, in fact, what I found was once I got over there and started interviewing people, law enforcers, um, members of militant groups, including a lot of guys in Al-Muhajirun, the Al-Maj guys, uh, the study has since been expanded to a case study that focuses largely on them with, uh, with over, over 50 interviews with, with active and current members. Um, lots of participants participant observation, hanging out with these guys uh, as they do their protests and, and other activities. Um, with respect to the terrorist operations themselves, um, what I found was, at least to me, uh, and again, this is back in 2007 that much of the research was being done, was a surprising amount of sloppiness, operational sloppiness, uh, careless mistakes, and some really bad tradecraft. You know, the ability to operate undercover, to, to do what you want to do without attracting the attention of law enforcement. Um, and I was finding this not only in the so-called failed plots, like Glasgow, um, which one of the gentlemen was asking about earlier, where you had the, the medical doctor and the engineer, uh, trying to, you know, highly educated guys trying to do something. The operation was a mess, uh, poorly conceived, very poorly executed. Um, but even when you look at some of the more successful attacks, Madrid, 7-7, uh, um, the Madrid bombings, to take one example, um, the perpetrators of that violated basic rules and tradecraft, leaving them needlessly exposed and preparing for the thing to remember about Madrid is it wasn't supposed to be a one-off. It was supposed to be the beginning of a campaign. But what happened was because their tradecraft was fairly sloppy and because three of the 13 bombs that they constructed failed to detonate and because they were using the same batch of cell phones that they used to trigger their dynamite bombs as they were using to communicate with each other, when those three bombs failed to detonate, law enforcers had a treasure trove of intelligence that they were able to use to, to literally track these guys down. Because of their own mistakes, they were not able to achieve their intended aim, which was to carry out a sustained campaign uh, of attacks. And so you see this in, in case after case, which raises the question of, of why. You know, what explains the sloppiness? Um, what explains the poor tradecraft? And, and one thing that I look at is how these guys acquire the knowledge by which they want to engage in their activities, how they learn to engage in terrorism. Terrorism is a craft. It requires knowledge. And not all the knowledge 
is fungible from one theater to another, right? Cave smarts in Afghanistan are different than street smarts in London. You know, you can be trained in one set of behaviors in a training camp in Somalia or Yemen, but does that knowledge transfer seamlessly over into a Western context? What I found in my research was no, it does not. One reason for this is because sometimes some of the materials that bomb makers might have access to in Pakistan or Yemen or Somalia, they're not going to have access to here in the West. Uh, we see an example with the Faisal Shahzad case, him having to go to the low-grade fertilizer because he couldn't get access to the good stuff. You, you see these sorts of things over and over. And so I think about knowledge in terms of abstract technical knowledge. Here, think of recipes, you know, a recipe to build a bomb, which does transfer well. Okay, that's one sort of knowledge that you need to engage in terrorism. But you also have to have lots of hands-on, practical, experiential knowledge that is specific to your local context. Even if you've been trained how to make a certain type of bomb in Pakistan, are you going to be able to transfer that knowledge to a suburb of DC or Las Vegas, or in some of the cases I was looking at, Madrid, London? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Matisse, well, without getting too much in the technical jargon, that it's a term that comes from the ancient Greeks to refer to this sort of, uh, this, this crafty, cunning, experiential knowledge that is really the hallmark of being able to engage in successful terrorism. And since 9-11, um, many terrorist perpetrators uh, do not have uh, the sort of metis that they need to, to be more successful. One reason has to do with what Risa was emphasizing earlier, an increasingly hostile counterterrorism environment. To develop metis, you have to practice. You know, you can't, it's, building bombs is, it's not rocket science, okay, unless it's a certain type of bomb, I suppose. Um, but it does require knowledge, right? It's not as simple as going to the internet and just downloading a manual and working from scratch if you're an amateur. I actually looked at this in the research. Uh, one of the, the folks I interviewed was a bomb-making expert who was consulted by the U.S. Department of Defense, by Her Majesty's uh, defense uh, establishment as well. This guy is one of the foremost uh, bomb-makers in the world. And we spent an afternoon together looking at online bomb-making manuals that the Islamists, that the Islamists were apparently using in some of their operations. It was uh, instructive, to say the least. Uh, this recipe after recipe, this, this guy could not believe how bad they were. Garbage, this is the blind leading the blind. Um, near the end of our time together, I asked him, well, if you were like me, an amateur and bomb making, and you had access to this information, would you be able to do something? He said that some of these recipes might work okay if you had some background knowledge. But he said for every one of, every one of those, four or five of these are just complete rubbish, that it's really the blind leading the blind. And critically, we talked about how in order to be able to make these sorts of distinctions, you have to have that background knowledge to begin with. You have to have 
enough understanding of chemistry, engineering, to be able to look at the recipe in the first place and separate the wheat from the chaff. And so the knowledge is a critical resource that, that, needs to, um, that needs to be looked at. And these plots are not expensive, so money's not the problem. Um, certainly not a problem with number of soft targets out there, so opportunity's not a problem. Uh, motivation, I mean, there's a lot of angry young men out there that, that want to harm us, so the motivations are there. But really, I think one resource that, that doesn't get the play that it perhaps deserved is knowledge. You know, do you have the practical, experiential knowledge to be able to build the bombs and, and put them together in a successful attack? And what we find is that there's a big difference between hot operational theaters like Iraq and Afghanistan, where you have a bunch of folks around that actually do have that practical experiential knowledge. Why? Because they've been building <laughs> lots of bombs for a period of time. They have the matisse. But a lot of the young men running around in London, in Madrid, and elsewhere in the West, frankly, they don't have that matisse. And after 9-11, it's become that much harder for them Mention has been made of the overseas training camps. I would agree with the previous speakers that uh, the, in, in the case of the UK, certainly, um, and, and Brian Jenkins was emphasizing this as well, going to the overseas training camps. But since 9-11, the quality of those overseas training camps, in part due to counterterrorism pressure, has diminished considerably. These it's not the same sort of thing as, as we were dealing with in Afghanistan in, in the 80s and the 90s. It, it might be a, a, just a couple of guys getting together. Maybe they go off for a week or two. So the quality of the training has significantly deteriorated. Um, so look, at the end of the day, the argument isn't that we don't face a threat. Um, as Brian was emphasizing earlier today, you know, dummies can be deadly. That's the article that was of mine that's out there. I think it's called Dumb Yet Deadly. You know, so recognizing their, their carelessness is not a clarion call for dismissing the threat entirely. What I think it does call for is putting away the hyperbole, you know, putting away the fear and exaggeration, and focusing, you know, objectively on the threat that we, that we are facing. And I think when you strip away a lot of the hyperbole and these ideas that we face an existential threat out there, no, let, let's look at the operations themselves. What are these guys capable of doing? Um, it can be, it can be uh, pretty, pretty insightful. And I'll go ahead and end there. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mr. Carl. <clears throat> Thank you. Good morning. I'm going to speak a bit about the changes that have occurred in the terrorist, nature of the terrorist threat and the level of it over the last 10 years uh, since 9-11. So I'll speak a little bit about what we thought and uh, what we think and then what has changed. We also have heard this morning from my uh, colleagues on the podium here about the terrorists today and a lot about the other, we'll call them, can call them the other, the enemy, the bad guys. And I'll talk a little bit more about us and what we think and how that affects the nature of the threat too. Uh, knowing yourself is the 
first rule uh, towards wisdom, isn't it? Most of us, I'll include all of us, uh, have really no thoughts. Or rather, none of us have uh, any thoughts most of the time. Or rather, the thoughts that we have and most of what we think is reflexive and thoughtless. This should be a humbling realization if we realize it. Uh, we really need to doubt everything that we do because it almost always will be mindless based upon preconception, fear, desire, and reflex. Socrates said that I only know one thing, and that's that I know nothing. And that's the first step towards wisdom, and I'd argue towards a, a reasoned assessment of the nature of the terrorist threats that we have faced and continue to face. To order the world, everything that happens around us, we, we have to reduce events. All of the kinetic stimulus that gives us perception and that, that equates with life rather than stasis, uh, fit, we have to interpret those actions to fit patterns. Otherwise, the world and the events that uh, we perceive will have no meaning unless we give it some. And we do this by perceiving the world through a series of reductionist paradigms. My book is called The Interrogator, and it's about my experience leading the interrogation of one of the top Al-Qaeda terrorists, we believed, that we had uh, captured. The working title of the book until the very end, just before publication, was Victims of Delusion. And we've heard how deluded our adversaries are. And my point is that we need to be aware of to what extent we may be, and, and I'm, I know that we have been, deluded ourselves. There are three levels of delusion I, argued in, I argue about in my book. Al-Qaeda certainly was deluded that through any acts that it could perpetrate, it could change the nature of the world in which it lived, the trends that it, was, uh, that it objected to um, in any meaningful way. The U.S. government's been deluded consistently, far less so now, but still, by the nature of the terrorist threat and the paradigm that, that shapes all of these facts and events that we then filter and interpret. And then the third deluded component that I talk about a bit in my book is the American public, which has to rely on our leaders and the, and the likes of me when I was in the government to protect our national security and understand the nature of the threat because normal people are dentists or lawyers or teachers or mothers or fathers and, and uh, can't spend all their waking day, as all of us have, uh, struggling to understand the other and maybe to understand ourselves. So they have to rely on, on us, and they have been deluded. So really what I started to talk about, and I'll talk about a bit more, is uh, sociology and epistemology. In my work as a National Intelligence Officer for Terrorism, or as an operations officer, which is what I did for my career, I was in the field recruiting people to spy against their countries and for the United States, uh, Superiors of mine would often say, Glenn, you know, this is all very nice, you know, but we don't do sociology. We do operations, so focus on your job. And, of course, they're right, but they're also wrong. Because unless we know ourselves, we will be wrong. 
And I think we have consistently misled ourselves. The paradigm that has dominated our counterterrorism policies since 9-11 has been that Al-Qaeda and Jihad, uh, which have been conflated into one thing uh, effectively for many, uh, is a global phenomenon, is coherent, and we heard two terms from previous speakers, uh, strategic and poses an existential threat to the West, to the United States, to our societies even. But that has never been the case. Al-Qaeda never really has had a coherent strategy. Some of its thinkers, in particular, uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, think deeply. Uh, and he and Osama bin Laden did have different uh, strategic objectives, I guess. I don't, I don't know if, it, one, if their thoughts would rise to the level of a strategy, one being to attack the uh, apostate regimes in the Middle East, that was Zawahiri's thinking, and remains, and the other being to attack the head of the snake, the origin uh, that holds up, the power that holds up these apostate regimes, the United States. But that's about the extent of the strategy. Most jihadists are far, jihadists are far more visceral, uh, unthinking, reactive, idealistic, and stupid, as we've heard, although possibly heroic. Our reactions have been based on fear and ignorance of the threat. Itself, our reaction has been a visceral one. Because what was the order of the threat at its apex? Let's say on September 11, 2001, what was Al-Qaeda? This is something that the intelligence communities, to my knowledge, uh, never were asked to or able to provide a concrete answer uh, to. I think there are policy reasons for that, uh, different kinds of policy. Uh, but, but we did know the answer. At least I knew the answer, and I'm not unique in, uh, in my insights. Al-Qaeda at its height was about four to 600 men, of whom all but a handful were in Afghanistan and then scattered. And I would argue, since it was a hierarchical, coherent organization um, with command and control, its de facto officer corps was, what, 10, 20% of the institutions? So say there are 50 individuals in Al-Qaeda who may have been able to uh, conceive, plan, organize, and carry out with subordinates a terrorist operation. That was at its height. There was great concern about uh, a mushroom cloud blowing up over New York. Al-Qaeda would get a nuke. Someone would give them a nuke sort of like a, or just give away something like that maybe and share it, lose command and control, which you know, I attribute rationalism, uh, rational acting to most of our enemies, and that doesn't strike me as a highly probable event to give up uh, something of that control. But okay, there are nukes, and they have an active nuclear program was the thought. Well, in fact, let's say that Al-Qaeda decided, and we know about what, many of the debates that they had and actions they took, Let's say they decided to devote, they said, this, is a, this would be a major priority for us. We must have one. We must steal one uh, or make one. So we will put 50% of our resources onto this program. Well, effectively, that meant 25 men, possibly, who were thinkers. 
Now, it took 25% of the United States' gross national product from 1941 to 1945, the largest economy in the world, 25% of our GNP in the Manhattan Project to develop the bomb. Now, we did the hard work. One could, it's easier to do now than then. Uh, but Iran has devoted substantial resources for many years in the attempt to develop a weapon. This is not an easy thing to do. And stealing one is not easy either. So the reality was they didn't have one. They were very unlikely to get one. They wouldn't be able to deliver one, probably. Uh, and they were wise about it and largely decided this is beyond our reach. Similarly, with the biological weapons program, there was great fear. We have evidence. There was anthrax found at Tarnak Farms in um, Kandahar when we uh, invaded and destroyed the Taliban and, and al-Qaeda's infrastructure there. Well, that is true, but it's also true that the anthrax, quote, unquote, found was naturally occurring in the ground around the site and that the, anthrax, the biological weapons program was led by one man uh, who um, really didn't have much of a background in this. So what was, what, what was the case of the nature, what was the nature of the terrorist threat? That there are multiple crises in parts of the developing world that were Islamic, with long-standing local and regional phenomena and organizations that were cate um, catalyzed into uh, violence or opposition, and there was only one organization that ever targeted the homeland of the United States. One. That was Al-Qaeda. All of the developing world is undergoing just a tsunami, a revolution of change. That's the driving element. Al-Qaeda is a symptom. Jihadism is a symptom of traditional Muslim societies responding to the inevitable unavoidable, irresistible changes of globalization is the term we use, of technological change, rising literacy of women and the general population, on and on and on. You can check, check, off, check off the factors of social change that caused the revolution. Al-Qaeda is a response to that. Nonetheless, it's true that there are men trying to kill us. Few. So what have the changes been since 9-11? I'd say the number one factor of the whole dynamic is unchanged, and that's the, the destruction of traditional societies by modern modernism, uh, and the accelerating rate of change. This means that to all the Muslim world, which is a traditional and therefore, frankly, doomed series of societies, uh, turmoil will continue and there will be gr grievances that some people will try to address through violence. US policy has largely destroyed Al-Qaeda as an effective institution, although it only takes one, as we've heard, and there are still men uh, who are attempting and are capable of killing you or me and are trying. The disparate regional movements, however, have largely changed their, they have been affected by a couple of things, three things I would say. Al-Qaeda's ideology and the, and the public attention it has received by uh, reactions to American policy in part which have been driven by intrinsic American objectives in part by response to Al-Qaeda and by Saudi money, which has proselytized uh, Wahhabism and uh, changed the definition of Islam as it should respond to modern societies. U.S. policy has shifted greatly also since 9-11. This is largely with the change of presidential administrations. 
It is far more nuanced. It's now about al-Qaeda and jihadists rather than a global war on terror, a term that always was meaningless and that one never hears really anymore. But it still remains a bit reductionist and still tends to view the jihadist problem as an entity and a whole, which thus still distorts and worsens the problem through our perceptions and actions. Nonetheless, not too far, by parrying specific threats and letting globalization run its course, which will extend beyond any of our lifetimes, U.S. policy has reverted to a rational two-fold approach that obtained prior to 9-11. And that is a technical response, a professional response to terrorist threat, and a strategic awareness of the nature of the, the seismic changes affecting the international order, and in particular, traditional societies. So what's been going on then since 10-11? I'll give one, one example only. Mohammed Mera recently in France, we read about, was he a jihadist? Well, he really is the type of what we've heard about from the other speakers today. He was a local guy. When I met with foreign intelligence services, I heard the same expression. This is literally true. When I met with the French, they said, well, these guys are petit perdants. They're little losers. When I met with the Spanish, not long after uh, the uh, March, 311, March 11 bombings, they said, son pequeños perdientes. They're little losers. When I met with the Dutch, they changed the vocabulary. They said, well, these are just a bunch of guys. They're losers, too. The assessments are all correct. So there is a simple storyline or paradigm that uh, has distorted us in our response, which we have moved from. And that's that we aren't now confronted with a global war on terror or an existential coherent threat, that we're dealing with a symptom, frankly, of globalization, which is lethal and does call for the actions of professionals like uh, those of us on the, on the podium today or in the law enforcement and intelligence communities. Uh, there are threats to parry, no question about it. But those are symptoms rather than drivers. Jihadism really in the long run will be doomed, although there will always be uh, fringe people who will commit violence. And the world does remain a dangerous place but the revolutions are deeper, the social revolutions that have caused these things are actually even deeper and faster now than they were a decade ago. And this, the disruption and fear, anger, and some violence that they will cause are certain to continue. What's changed, this is the end, is that Al-Qaeda is largely destroyed, largely. Our policies are more nuanced, but not totally. After all, what is our mission in Afghanistan, one could wonder. Uh, it's never really been articulated. Turmoil has spread, which strategically we cannot stop, and we should welcome. Because as someone else said in a different context, we are the change that jihadists are opposing, we being the modern world. Thank you. <laughs>